0: Hello, this is Dean Kernut, and welcome to the Alpha Exchange, where we explore topics in financial markets associated with managing risk, generating return, and the deployment of capital in the alternative investment industry. In 2008, as the global financial crisis unfolded and his employer, Lehman Brothers, descended into bankruptcy, Jared Dillian decided to go it alone. An ETF market maker with a gift for writing, Jared launched the Daily DirtNap, a newsletter focused on identifying market themes and actionable trade ideas. 13 years and 3,000 publications later, the DirtNap is widely enjoyed by a loyal readership finding value in Jared's insights. Our conversation is one part retrospective, exploring the fast days of the pre-crisis period when Jared committed risk capital at Lehman, locking ETF markets in pursuit of buy-side commission business. In the process, we get a window into the formation of the DirtNap, that being his daily client communications over Bloomberg while at Lehman. We also discussed Jared's active imagination and love of writing, learning more of his fiction book, All the Evil of This World, built around the Palm 3Com pricing dislocation. Lastly, we talked macro markets, covering gold, inflation, and energy. With gold, Jared takes a contrarian and bullish view, seeing the vastly negative sentiment on Twitter as an ultimate upside catalyst, and also placing value in the low correlation that gold has with risk assets generally. I hope you enjoy this episode of the Alpha Exchange, my conversation with Jared Dillion. My guest today on the Alpha Exchange is Jared Dillion. He is the editor of the Daily Dirtnap, a newsletter that covers all kinds of topics in finance. Jared, it's great to have you on the podcast today. Dean,
1: good to talk to you again. Thanks for having me.
0: I'm excited to have this conversation. We've known each other for a number of years now. And I was noting on Twitter that you just are celebrating the 13th anniversary of the founding of the DirtNap. So well done and fantastic in in staying with it through all of these risk cycles. So we'll talk a lot about that. We'll talk about some of your books. And I'm sure we'll have plenty to talk about just in terms of markets. Get us started. Tell us about how you wound up in the industry. I know one of your earliest positions was trading etfs
1: for lehman brothers but take us back to the beginning well i started out as a local on the p coast basically i was going to business school at the university of san francisco i wanted to work on wall street i wanted to get some experience that i could show a bank on wall street that i was committed so i wandered down to the p coast and i hustled myself up a job i was actually working for boda capital management or boda trading whichever incarnation you want to use they were based out of Chicago. They had about eight or 10 people on the P Coast. And I worked there for a little over a year. I mean, I was about 26 years old, 25, 26. It was some of the most fun I've ever had in my entire life. It was awesome. Now, I was just a clerk. I never got a badge. I was working part-time. I was working two days a week. I was getting coffee, getting bagels, printing risk reports, getting tickets, putting them in micro-hedge and learning about options. So my you know my first job in finance was in options which turned out to be super valuable because if you understand stocks you don't understand finance. If you understand options and bonds you understand all of finance. You know, so when I got to New York, I got hired by Lehman Brothers and I was way ahead of my peers that had gone to you know the top 10 business schools. They'd gotten these great educations, and I had this practical experience on the trading floor. It was awesome. Now, when I started at Lehman, I started doing index arbitrage, which was a dying business at that point. And we were doing it by hand. This is before it became an algorithmic trade. I was on the phone with the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. I had a program trading terminal. I was trading 10 lots of NASDAQ futures against baskets of stock. I did this for about two or three years. I was successful at it. And then in 2004, I was made head of the ETF trading desk. Had a younger guy working with me. We were doing about 20 million in revenue when I took over in 2008 at the bankruptcy. We were doing 90 million in revenue. And we were ranked second in market share next to Goldman Sachs. And by the way, that period of time in the ETF business, you know, ETFs were still very new and people weren't using ETFs then like they were today. Like today, people buy and hold the ETFs, accumulate assets. Back then, it was really a hedge fund trade. Hedge funds were day trading ETFs in and out of the day. My client base was all very fast hedge funds. It was a super stressful job.
0: The ETF business is certainly one that's evolved over time. And in that period that you were in a position of taking a lot of risk was in a huge growth cycle, incredibly competitive. You had to stand up to large markets. And so maybe maybe this is a good place for us to start and just in learning about some of the philosophy that you've gathered along the way just in terms of risk-taking. And I, for one, among others, I'm sure, really enjoyed your book. I know a lot of that was personal. There was some great market anecdotes in there, many of which you know, really resonated with me. And on the ETF side, especially, you talk a lot about providing liquidity in a fast-paced market, a volatile market where customer expectations are extremely high. And so you're trying to balance this idea of keeping the casino open at all times, but also risk management. Tell us about some of how you thought about that and maybe some of the lessons you learned along the way in terms of that balance of liquidity and risk management?
1: Well, back then, you know, commissions and ETFs were $0.03 a share. And the desk was expected to lose money trading. Okay, So back then, we thought of an acceptable loss ratio at about 30%. So on any trade, we would lose about a penny a share. And that's generally what it worked out to over time in order to be competitive, and we had a lot of competitors at all the different banks, in order to be competitive, you had to provide very tight pricing. And in a lot of cases, that meant locked markets. You know, Locked markets in things like spies and queues, but also the sector ETFs and anything that was liquid, we would do locked markets in. And what a locked market means is that the bid and the offer are the same price. So we basically, I became very adept at predicting our customers' behavior. So I could lock a market at prices that were advantageous to us, and the customer couldn't really complain about it because they were getting a locked market. And if I could guess correctly which way the customer was going over and over again, that it meant that we kept our loss ratio to a minimum. In the process of doing that, I became a student of market psychology and just by you know listening to the noise on the trading floor and listening to the news and you know watching the screens on bloomberg i became really really good at predicting what clients were going to do and inevitably they all sold on the bottom and bought in the highs and that's how we made money
0: and tell us about just in terms of the instances where things went wrong was it technology that failed you? Was it uh, the interaction, perhaps, between the salesperson and the client? Many things can go wrong in fast-moving markets. Even if you're locking them in your own direction, they are locked, and you've got to get a basket off there. Tell us about some of the challenges that you ran into when things didn't go as planned.
1: A lot of the challenges we had came from when customers wanted to trade pre- and post-market. You know We were open for business at 7 a.m., and the trades would start at 7 a.m. And, you know, I think this is pretty commonplace nowadays, but back then trying to price a basket of stocks that hadn't opened yet and wouldn't open for two and a half hours was kind of challenging. Now, we weren't locking markets in those circumstances, but, you know, back then take an ETF like EEM, which was not super liquid back then. And this is like, you know, before all the splits and everything, it was very easy to misprice something and get it totally wrong, and you could trade you know, 400,000 shares of EEM and be off by a dollar, and that would ruin your whole day. So a lot of it really came from the mispricings. It wasn't really, and back then there was huge amounts of liquidity. I mean, not like today, there was massive amounts of liquidity. If you looked in the, the bid offer stack in the S&P futures, there were 2,000 contracts per tick. It was just as liquid in the NASDAQ, if you were looking, you know, in the screens for the ETFs, there was like, you know, five hundred thousand on the bid of the offer. There was huge amounts of liquidity, so it was hard to get in too much trouble.
0: Tell us a little bit more about the balance—the balance between trying to risk manage positions. That balance of being aggressive but but not too aggressive. The balance of, and I think you even mentioned it going in with a salesperson to to see a client and the tap is going to get turned on. So you're expecting some business to come your way. And the first couple of trades are just impossible. It's in some off the run ETF and the salesperson is certainly eager to look good on the first couple of trades. How did you strike that balance?
1: (laughs) Well, some of the people I met did not always have my best intentions in mind. It was very adversarial. I mean, a lot of it comes down to personal dynamics. Like, one thing I did at Lehman Brothers was I made a point of one or two times a day, I would get up from my desk when things were slow and I would go and hang out with the sales guys and just, just joke and screw around and you know just have a good time. And you know I got to be very, very good friends with them over the years and I had their trust and they had my trust and it just made things a lot easier. I mean, obviously – the relationship between trading and sales can be very adversarial but you know we were all on the same team and look there was lots of yelling people would make mistakes i would yell you know i was really a hothead at that time but everybody got along and it was a great environment so
0: interesting and when you when you wind up with these residual trades a lot of the sell side is about managing risks that you didn't really intend to have on but you wind up with them on because that's in support of the client base and the execution process. So you've got this residual book of risks. What were some of the ways in which you sought to neutralize those risks? Uh, There's the obvious trades like overlaying with futures perhaps, but was there anything that you wound up doing or were forced to do that was on the creative side to try to offset a risk that you wound up warehousing as a function of being in the business of supporting clients?
1: we didn't have to warehouse a lot of the risk. I mean, the way things worked back then was we had a separate account in the system created for each ETF in the basket of stock. And the goal was to go home perfectly hedged at the end of the day. And there weren't too many instances where we had overnight risk or where we had an imperfect hedge. It was pretty easy to get a perfect hedge. I can think of one trade in particular where I had to get creative was there was a very large real money customer that wanted to buy a lot of DVY. And I don't know if you remember, but this is around 2004. It was around the election. George W. Bush beat John Kerry. John Kerry had wanted to raise dividend taxes. George W. Bush wanted to keep them at 15%. He won the election. And all of a sudden, there was a lot of interest in dividend paying stocks. DVY was an ETF that it was weighted by dividend yield. So you had a lot of like very illiquid regional banks and utilities and stuff like that at the top of the basket. And this client bought several million shares of DVY. And it was literally, it was impossible to hedge. And we got steamrolled on that trade. So what I wanted to do was I wanted to make the money back. And I got an idea. DVY rebalanced once a year. So I figured out the rebalance for the DVY, so the ads and deletes. And I traded both sides of the basket, 50 million aside, and I played the rebalance and I made up all the money we lost on that trade and then some. Oftentimes
0: people are are impacted or they're influenced in terms of how they think about risk depending on the timing of their entry into the business. And for you, it seems like You were on the peak coast in the late 90s. We had just absolutely incredible volatility in tech stocks, both to the upside and the downside during that period. You had this lean period from maybe 2004 to early 2007, where there really was a leveraging cycle going on. And then, of course, tremendous volatility at a macro level through the financial crisis. Tell us just about that for you from a risk philosophy standpoint, those two episodes of extreme market volatility in a pretty short period of time, really really within a decade, you had two pretty seismic events. How did that impact your thinking on risk-taking? How does it continue to impact how you think about markets?
1: Well, one of the things I believe is that you know, whether you have bullish or bearish tendencies, a lot of it stems from the environment in which you started trading. Okay. So I started my career in November of 1999. The top of the dot-com bubble was four months later. And really the first three years of my career were a bear market. And I learned how to trade in a bear market. And a lot of people don't realize how big of a deal that was, but it was a very mild recession. It was like negative 0.1% GDP. But in capital markets terms, it was very, very severe. The NASDAQ was down 80%. A lot of stocks were down 95 to 99%. And it was also a very long bear market. It lasted like two and a half to three years and it just went on forever. So the first three years of my career, I kind of learned that markets can go down. Okay. And then fast forward to 2008. And I learned that lesson all over again. So, you know, I'm sort of, I'm sort of scarred by that. I mean, that's, that's in my DNA. That affects how I view the markets. I'm always waiting for the other shoe to drop. I'm always looking for how things can go wrong. And it's because of that early experience.
0: Yeah, it's certainly interesting. Those who have lived through those seminal events, and you know, you can put March of 2020 in the category of top, really, three vol event of all time. It just came and went so quickly. And as you noted, especially with the tech bubble I believe it was actually seven years from the recovery from the peak, which it took till 2007 to actually get back to where we were in the NASDAQ. Let's talk a little bit about the financial crisis and specifically financials and this ETF that was traded a little bit during that period in 2008 called the XLF. You started to see something really amiss when volume started to accelerate in the XLF. The bank stocks had been Boy, not much more volatile than the index at large. I remember B of A implied vol was 11, and you couldn't make a dime owning it at 11. But something starts happening probably by mid-2007 in financials. I'd love for you just to think back and take us through your process as a liquidity provider in that ETF, which really became kind of a central vehicle in the storm for a couple of years.
1: Well, I want to go back a little further than that, back to 2005, trading the home builder stocks. There wasn't yet a home builder ETF, but the home builder stocks were going parabolic. I created my own custom basket of home builders. I tried to short it. I got stopped out. But that actually the home builders actually croaked before the banks did. And if you go to 2007, you know, trading XLF. I mean, XLF was, you know, as an ETF trader was It was a super liquid ETF to trade, and even when there was some volatility, it wasn't that challenging. You also had KBE at the time and IAI, you know. But I kind of had my head down at that point in time, and I wasn't I wasn't super focused on the risk to the financial system. And they that may sound kind of naive, you know. But we had our our clients telling us. At Lehman, that they were shorting our stock, they weren't doing it with us, obviously they were doing it away, but they were telling us that they were shorting our stock, so yeah, I mean that was that was a big deal.
0: well, take us through that process, obviously, having been at Lehman and I have many many other friends as well that had to suffer through that challenging period. Share with us just how that worked for you and and just in balancing the role of taking risk on behalf of the firm, but being At a firm that was taking a lot of risk in the markets and and suffering. Share some, some thoughts with us on that.
1: Well, I mean, I guess, you know, the crisis started in the summer of 07. It actually started when I was in the Bahamas. I actually bought some VIX calls before I went on vacation, which ended up being a pretty smart move. And that was very early on in the VIX options. But, I mean, the stock peaked, Lehman Brothers stock peaked June, July, August of 2007, $85 a share or so. And I had the stock ticker on my Bloomberg and I would watch it every day. And the stock just could not get an uptick. Like every day it was down every single day. It was the worst trading stock on the board. And, you know, the messages that we were getting from management, you know, if you remember at the time, Aaron Callum was CFO, was that, you know, everything was okay. And, you know, we had a couple of big earnings reports and we squeezed the short David Einhorn was out there making negative comments about Lehman. We were hearing conflicting things from our clients. I actually started looking for another job in the summer of 2008. You know, if I could get a job trading on the buy side, I thought that might be attractive. But I gave up pretty quickly, and that's when I decided to start the newsletter.
0: Well, the newsletter, and this is really going to be fun to talk about because you're you're celebrating your 13th anniversary, which is just just fantastic. I read some of what you had posted on Twitter and just some of your own recollection about starting it. And so I'd love for you to share that. I'm recalling that really the start of it was Bloomberg messages. You were putting your thoughts on Bloomberg as part of your role of really supporting your sales force in distributing your ideas to your clients. Talk us through the kind of process, the set of uncertainties that you had in in hanging a shingle for yourself, the the challenges and excitement that you also felt at that time. Be great for you to share some of that.
1: Well, you know, as you said, I started writing Bloomberg commentary in 2004 when I was put in charge of the ETF desk. They told me to be a marketing guy. They told me to grow the business. So this was the best way that I could figure out to grow the business. So, you know, I used to write these notes every day and most of them were intended to be humorous and I'm a good writer so they actually became somewhat viral. And over the course of a couple of years, I had thousands of people on my list. And I think that actually contributed to, you know, the growth in our business. You know, I'd actually we gained some notoriety and people wanted to trade with us because of those notes. So I got the idea, you know, I was reading Dennis Gartman at the time. So I said, well, I can do a newsletter and this is going to be easy because I have, you know, several thousand people on my list. And if I get a thousand signed up for the newsletter and I charge six hundred bucks a year, then I'm off to a good start. So Lehman goes bankrupt and I quit, and everybody tells me I'm nuts because there's going to be retention bonuses that I'm walking away from, and you know all this stuff. And I left, and I got this office over on Third Avenue, this tiny little office that I was paying fifteen hundred a month for, didn't have any windows, and I got a computer. And around October, November of 2008, I started sending out newsletters and I did not get a thousand subscriptions. Let's put it that way. I got substantially less than that. And, you know, I got to tell you, there's the newsletter space is becoming very crowded. I have a lot of competitors. I like my competitors personally, and I also welcome the competition. And I'm not really worried about the competition because I do something that's completely unique. But, you know, it's really hard to get people to pay for content. You know, when there's so much free content out there and that's that's really what people were telling me back in 2008 was, you're nuts, nobody's going to pay for this stuff because they can get all kinds of free content blogs and other places. But, you know, the business model has proven to be good, you know, over the course of the last 13 years. Most of the growth has been organic. I have about 4,000 subscribers now and it's been a success.
0: It's wonderful. And you are correct. There is uh, absolute excess of content out there. It's formidable in a lot of ways, but I think ultimately what you're trying to do, and it seems like you've been successful, is establishing yourself as a unique voice on behalf of, of your readership. So it's all about something that's different and, and uniquely valued. I want to go back to the start again, the 2008 start. Striking out on your own, one of the things that you lose is the context of the trading floor. You said you're good at reading the room, hearing clients' voices, you're seeing trades and volume go through, you get a sense perhaps where stop losses are, where fear really overtakes people's behavior, and that kind of goes away when you sit in a small room on on 46th and 3rd. So your cost base goes down but your the information that you're able to access in order to to find those insights also goes down quite a bit. Tell us about that, just in terms of being in a room by yourself and generating ideas.
1: Well, two things. First of all, you know, for the first six months, it was an adjustment, for sure. I felt like I was flying blind. Second of all, the stuff I write about tends to be pretty long-term. You know, even though I was a market maker in ETFs, I'm not a short-term trader at all. I focus on long-term themes. So I don't really Focus on the tape on an intraday or even intraweek basis. I like to tell people so I have Bloomberg and I have Twitter. And if you made me give up either Bloomberg or Twitter, I would actually give up Bloomberg. I would give up the charts. I would give up the data. I would give up the news. And I could write a newsletter just based on what I see on Twitter because the value of what people put on Twitter in terms of sentiment is so valuable. It's really like it's a money-making machine if you know how to use it correctly. And anybody who knows anything about my work, know that I focus on sentiment, I focus on psychology and, you know, I actually I rely heavily on Twitter for my business. Just literally not even necessarily tweeting, but just listening to what people are saying and how they're saying it.
0: Well, that's really interesting and I'd love to learn a little bit more about that. So, Twitter has got tons of people on there. The thin twit, so to speak, is, is steeped with people that are quite sophisticated in terms of their knowledge of, of markets, of derivatives, of monetary policy. But there's also a lot of noise there too. And so I'm assuming that you've kind of trained yourself to find the best nuggets. And I'm curious if you can just elaborate a little bit more on how you utilize it so effectively as a tool to understand sentiment better.
1: Well, let me give you an example. I saw a tweet the other day. I won't say who it's from, but this person tweeted that in 2011, there was a poll. I don't remember who did the poll, but there was a poll that people's expectations for the best performing asset class going forward 10 years was gold. And this is what people were saying in 2011. And in the tweet, it said that gold's return for the next 10 years was negative 4% annualized. Stocks were up 398%. Housing was up 90%. Bonds were up 35%. So basically what the tweet is saying is that you know gold was the most popular asset in 2011, but it ended up being the worst performing. So that got me thinking, what if you ran that poll today, okay? What if you ran that poll today and you said, if you ask people what is going to be the best performing asset for the next 10 years? for sure they would say Bitcoin, 100%. Number two would be stocks. And I don't know what would come after that. Gold would probably be last, right? I think, see, this is why I pay attention to Twitter because this stuff is super interesting.
0: I've I've kind of framed a similar question a little bit differently. And it's a little bit more on the, not the asset performance side, but on the risk side. And I often say, what is the risk that in five years we're going to look back on and say, boy, that was staring us in the face? Right? I mean, you know, it it, it was never a good idea in 2005, six, seven to have these banks levered up 30 to 35X, right? It just, if you just pull out a spreadsheet or just a piece of paper and say, well, okay, that's two to 3% of potential failure, boy, that seems like a pretty narrow, you know, margin of safety. And yet, Here we were allowing bank CDS to trade at 20 to 25 basis points. And I just wonder what that is. I know you've got some strong views on inflation. I tend to sort of also say that the next crisis to occur is the one that happened longest ago. You know, we're just, we're human beings, we forget, our memories aren't really very long. And if we haven't experienced something ever, or at least for a very long time, it just almost becomes irrelevant in our line of thinking. So when you think about gold as a, having a place in the portfolio? Is it as an inflation hedge? Is it a correlation expression that sits inside your portfolio? And how does it line up against your views on inflation?
1: Yeah, I have gold in my portfolio for a whole bunch of reasons. I'm sure you're familiar with Chris Cole and his idea of Dennis Rodman and the contribution to risk in a portfolio That's really the main reason to hold it is because of its correlations with other assets. It's a risk-reducing asset. That's number one. Number two, over long periods of time, it does have a correlation to inflation. It actually has a tighter correlation to budget deficits. If you can chart budget deficits over time, you can lay it over gold, and gold tracks almost perfectly with budget deficits – and, you know, I started investing in gold in 2005 and I started to see all these trends developing and it wasn't so much that I was investing in gold and saying, oh, well, I'm going to get rich in gold. but just if I have to pick between two assets, if I have to pick between gold and stocks starting in 2005, I'll pick gold. And since 2005, it's actually been kind of a horse race. It's been about even going forward. I think it's going to be gold.
0: And I like to look at that in the same way. It's it's really about the correlation properties, how it sits in a a portfolio. One of the tests I've run is I look at the ten or so worst days in the last twenty years for the S and P. Let's say ten or twenty worst days. So that's probably a down, you know, four percent day the maybe the top twenty. And then I say, okay, what's the conditional behavior of gold on those days? and it's down a couple times you know what really gold is ultimately going to suffer from is the liquidation dynamics of a uh, october 2008 or a march of 2020 but in general on those big risk off days it's not suffering as other risk assets are suffering so i think that's i think that's really critical you've had some strong views on inflation i think tell us what you think there and what people might be missing
1: well I started to get develop some strong views on inflation very early on in the pandemic. When I saw what we were doing with the PPP loans and the stimulus checks and we lowered rates to zero, I felt that the government and the Fed would overcompensate for the pandemic and they would put too much liquidity in the economy. We would have inflation and that's played out. My current views are that nobody is going to do anything about inflation until it becomes a political concern. And it's starting to become a political concern. I think that's going to start showing up in the polls over the next six months. That if you look at voting intentions and what people say about inflation, it all started after Biden was elected. So I don't, you know, I think that Biden kind of owns this. So the question is Does anybody know what to do about inflation? Now, I really truly believe that nobody in the Biden administration knows how to fight inflation. They just don't know how. They don't know how to do it. The Fed, I guess from an academic standpoint, for sure knows how to fight inflation, but there's no incentive to do so, and they won't do it until the pain of inflation becomes higher than the pain of a potential recession, okay? And until then, I don't really see a big hurry to tighten monetary policy, and I think we're probably going to get double-digit inflation in the next six to 12 months, and I don't see it getting any better. It is such a tricky risk
0: dynamic, the time that we find ourselves in markets. And one of the things I always just think about, and I'd love to get your take on it, as you step back and contemplate, let's just say, whether risk assets are a good deal or not. If the upside you know, far outstrips that which you think might be the downside, how does monetary policy fit into that? You know, For me, I just am concerned that we've had this Fed that Has really enjoyed a dual mandate that's always moved in the same direction, right? We've been obviously trying to increase growth, but doing that as inflation was sitting below the 2% target for most of the last 25 years, up until, you know, really a year ago. And so that to me seems like at least a potentially very different interaction with markets than we could conceivably be approaching if the inflation proves not transitory. How does monetary policy fit into? Just your overall approach for assessing risk and reward.
1: You know, back when I was at Lehman, my boss at the time, we were having a discussion on volatility. And even though I was a Delta One trader, he knew that I started out as a vol trader. So he knew I had some understanding of volatility. And he basically said that when you withdraw liquidity, volatility goes up. And when you add liquidity, volatility goes down. And I mean, it seems kind of simplistic, but it actually it tends to be true. So, in terms of monetary policy, I mean, I don't want to get too much into this, but right now the Fed is sort of in crisis with the trading scandal, which has gone back to Powell. And what you're going to see at the Fed is a really big ideological transformation. It's going to become a more dovish Fed. But I guess the point is, is that if the Fed ever gets around to withdrawing liquidity which is, like I said, when it becomes a political concern, it's going to be a very big vol expanding event. It's going to be very big.
0: And a lot of folks will throw Bitcoin in the it's an inflation hedge category. I think that's yet to be proven. I mean, clearly, inflation's going up and Bitcoin are going up. I'm not sure they're the same thing. They certainly could be. But the Bitcoin ETF has made its debut today with a gazillion shares trading, and you know this was a long time in the making a lot of concern I think from the regulators that this might not be appropriate for individual investors they might be getting in over their skis. You've made the point as well that boy we've got a we had a two times levered VIX ETF, you know, a, a long Bitcoin ETF might not be as toxic as something like that. What's the balance it, just in terms of supporting product innovation but also seeing kind of time and time again when products are misunderstood, folks, especially those with less financial acumen, tend to
1: suffer the most. So I was on the desk in 2006 or 7, and one of the one of the product development people from the leveraged ETF companies came by the desk, and they were telling us about this leveraged NASDAQ ETF. So they had a leveraged and two times leverage and two times inverse leverage. So they had this slide deck and they're showing us how it works. And, you know, my partner, I'm looking at him. He's looking at me and I'm like, is this guy nuts? (laughs) Like, I can't believe this is actually going to be a product. Like, (laughs) I couldn't believe it to this day. To this day, I really, I, for the life of me, I have no idea why the SEC approved to leverage ETFs? It's it's been a huge wealth transfer from the unsophisticated to the sophisticated, and it hasn't it hasn't gotten better. So you know I think in the case of the Bitcoin ETF, you know I think Bitcoin has matured a lot in the last seven years since the initial filing. I think we could have a spot Bitcoin ETF. I think the question there really comes down to the fact that the spot market is completely unregulated, whereas the futures market trades on an exchange and is like regulated. So I don't really think that we're going to get a spot Bitcoin ETF anytime soon. As you talk about the spot
0: Bitcoin ETF, obviously the implication is that what we've just seen launch is one that's based on futures. I know you've done a lot of work over the years and traded products that have a contango term structure, essentially, baked into them. Tell us a little bit about contango and backwardation, how a market arrives at that. Be good to just hear how you think about it. And then we can talk about some of the here and now with with what's going on in commodities like copper.
1: Well, I mean, anytime you trade a commodity where it's, whether it's like Bitcoin or hogs or corn or cattle or something like that, like there's a cost of storage, right? So, I mean, even gold. With gold, gold is negative carry. You know, I mean, it's it's got a cost of storage. GLD costs 40 basis points a year. So it's not a huge cost to carry, but it, it is. It's a negative carry asset. And there's times in history where positive carry assets do well. And there's times in history where negative carry assets do well. So, you know, I've traded ETFs where there's been a steep contango. I've paid the 10% a year in roll costs and sometimes that's worked out and sometimes it hasn't. I guess the problem is, is that when you have unsophisticated investors and they look at something like USO, they say, well, it's an oil ETF and the contango is massive and they lose 20% and spot doesn't go anywhere. I mean, that really comes down to financial education.
0: Well, as you mentioned, the oil ETF, the USO back in the aftermath of the most protracted part of the 2020 crisis. And it's now April of 2020, and, and this storage cost issue or this delivery issue, taking delivery issue, becomes a real thing in a hurry for the USO. I think there was an ETF based in China as well that targeted front month crude futures as well. What do you remember about that? What was on your mind as that really incredible pricing dislocation? I think we got to, what, minus 35 or 37 for a moment there on front month uh, crude futures.
1: I gotta tell you, you know, I have a pretty big imagination. I can see a lot of things going wrong. I did not see that happening. I did not predict that one. I would not have been able to predict that, that one. And in the context of the Bitcoin ETF, you know, a couple of people have said this online, but since it's based on Bitcoin futures, we really we don't know what it's going to do. Since inception, the Bitcoin futures have been a Contango. I suppose it's possible that they could be in backwardation. It's possible that all kinds of things could happen. It's not spot. I mean, we know that Bitcoin can't go below zero, but we know from the oil market that Bitcoin futures could. So there's all kinds of things that can happen.
0: Well, you mentioned backwardation. There's a a host of commodities right now that find their curves in backwardation. The copper one is incredible to look at. Just the the extent of it, not gas, of course, is is another, among many others. I know you do a lot of thinking on, on energy and on commodities. What's on your mind there? You've got some, I think, some longer term views. I think you noted a potential sort of last super cycle of up moves in things like crude as we transition to more ESG compliant assets. But tell us, what are you thinking on the commodity complex?
1: Well, I got pretty bullish on energy a month or two before the negative prices, so I took a drawdown right off the bat. I was a big believer in the idea that ESG would actually cause energy prices to rise, and I think it has contributed to that. I think in the short term, the sentiment around oil and coal and natural gas, coal has gone parabolic, natural gas went parabolic, sentiment is very, very hot. I think we put in a short-term top in energy. But I think over the course of maybe five years, it's a top in the context of a longer bull market. And how do you use some of your reading of the tea leaves, for
0: example, through through Twitter in terms of sentiment? Is it is it something that you can glean from tweets that are overly bullish on Twitter that we're approaching a top in some of these... Energy markets, or is it just too early to to suspect that that's could be the case?
1: Oh no! I mean, there's people. There's big victory laps going on on Twitter in oil and coal and natural gas. People are making memes. So tell us, just let's go back and, and talk a little bit about
0: your writing. You've got the the dirt nap. So if I multiply, you know, two hundred by thirteen, you've got you know probably close to three thousand issues there over the past 13 years. So that's amazing. Have you had any periods where you just kind of run into a writer's block where you're trying to find inspiration? And, and if you find yourself in there, is there something that you use to, to get out of it?
1: Yeah, there's definitely, I mean, there's definitely periods of time when there's so much to write about. I can't fit everything in three pages. And there's also periods of time when things are pretty boring and I'm trying to fill up three pages. I don't generally get writer's block. People ask me that a lot, and they ask me what the cure for writer's block is. And I say the cure for writer's block is a three-step process. The first step is you turn on your computer. Second step is you open Microsoft Word. And the third step is you start writing. (laughs) And that's, that's how you cure writer's block. Like, there's times, you know, I have to produce something every day, there's times that I have no idea what I'm talking about, and I, I just start writing about nonsense. But then as I'm writing, my thoughts crystallize, and then it goes a completely different direction, and it turns out to be one of the best things I've ever written. So, I mean, the solution to being bad at writing is to write a lot, and I love to write. And even if I didn't have the newsletter, I would write every single day. Well, we had
0: mentioned perhaps one of the challenges of not being on a trading floor and in that frenetic environment of information exchange, that being a challenge. But now you've sustained 4,000 readers, and I can imagine that there's some interaction between you and those those readers. Is there idea sourcing that comes through some of your
1: interaction with your readers? Oh, for sure. Sometimes I get I get amazing ideas. It's usually, it's not like you know, people pitching stocks. That doesn't happen very often. I ignore that stuff anyway. But sometimes it'll just be an email, a chat about the economy, the Fed or something. And somebody just says something a certain way and it sparks off an idea. And it's very valuable. It's very valuable. You've written a book, which is really a memoir
0: on your time on the street. And you've also written a a book of fiction really based on a a kind of true event about the Palm 3Com spinoff. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about what inspired you to write the book. And then, you know, let's talk a little bit about the dislocation itself between those. But talk to us about that book.
1: Yeah, honestly, I love that book. I think it's amazing. It's a very challenging book. It's very filthy. It's a dirty book. It's very explicit. But I actually, you know, that book is about 200 pages. It's about 70,000 words. I spent five years on that book. And I think, it is, I think it is one of the best things I've done in my entire life. And, it, and it's a very polarizing book. If you look at the reviews on Amazon, about 70% of them are five stars and 30% of them are one stars. The one star reviews, people said they threw it in the trash, stuff like that. <laughs> Tell me how you really think, how you really feel. <laughs> you know, I told my wife, you know, when I die, I want to be buried with a copy of that book. I absolutely love it.
0: Well, this was inspired by a a dislocation so significant that the world of academic finance took it up. There were a number of academic pieces in the finance literature that sought to try to explain how this could be. Walk us through not the character in the book, but your recollection of how this came to be, this valuation discrepancy
1: between a company
0: and a company owned by that company.
1: Well, at the time, you know, I actually lived it. So I was on the P coast and I was clerking for this guy who used to trade WorldCom, but he came over to the sun pit and he put himself on the wheel, which was the auto And, you know, I knew that the spinoff was happening. I didn't understand the corporate finance implications at the time. I didn't understand that three com was spinning off palm. So palm was actually had a m- higher market cap than three com which meant that it implied a negative market cap for 3Com. And if you could arbitrage that, if you could borrow the stock, if you could lock up the borrow and sit on it and withstand the volatility, then you can make a lot of money, but you couldn't borrow the stock. There were all kinds of derivative plays using options. A lot of people got carried out on that trade, but it was it was nuts.
0: There was a trade that preceded that, not to the same extent, but in the I would say probably mid-90s, it was the RJR stub trade, and you could buy one of the businesses at pennies on the dollar, not a negative level, but that was a very common stub trade. There were options written on the stub, and then sort of like the what occurred with crude, you kind of felt like, well, the stub is, can't be worth less than zero. Of course, we found out it certainly could be in the case of Palm3Com. But with RJR, people were writing options, and then the stub went to, you know, ultimately to a negative level. So that sort of idea that the stock price, i.e., the stub, was floored at zero turned out not to be the case as well during that during that period. Are there other dislocations that really stand out for you in terms of these are the the top things I've seen in terms of market prices. You said you have a great. Imagination, but it's really hard to have imagined what occurred in March or April of 2020 in crude. What are some of the other things that stand out where you're staring at a price on a screen and you say, my goodness, I could never have anticipated something so dislocated on a relative basis or on an
1: absolute basis from
0: what you thought was its value?
1: You know, I've seen lots of examples of overvaluation and undervaluation in my career. I mean, like Taser in 2003 even Zoom earlier this year. I mean, just insane stuff like that.
0: Well, those two, uh, and I'm trying to remember the Taser one, but I do recall that one being being pretty crazy. You've done some work on the personal finance side as well. You were hosting a, a radio show. You're thinking about doing a, a book on personal finance. Tell us a little bit about your venture into radio and just the idea of you utilizing the the knowledge that you've gained over the many years you've been been doing this to teach people on a personal finance level.
1: Yeah, I mean back in 2018 I started to think about my career and you know, I love my job. I love to write. I love my job. But now you ever see those things on Twitter where it says like describe what you do poorly, right? And I answered one of those things one time and I said I write things that rich people like to read. <laughs> that's, that's my job. So I said, you know, I think I have a purpose above and beyond that. And, you know, look like I came from a lower class background and not maybe lower middle class, not poor, but definitely lower middle class. And, you know, up until up until I went to Lehman Brothers, I was making forty five thousand dollars a year, you know. So I kind of get what it's like. But at the same time, in my life, I have done, from a personal finance standpoint, I have done a lot of things right. I haven't made too many mistakes. But my whole thesis on personal finance is you want to live a stress-free financial life. It's not about becoming a millionaire. There's books out there like The Millionaire Next Door, and they talk about these people. They got seven figures in the bank. They got two commas. They live in 1,200-square-foot houses. They drive a 15-year-old car. They have one suit that costs $99. And I'm like, you know what? That's not really how I want to live. You can get to a million dollars, but the austerity and asceticism that you have to endure in order to get there makes it not worth it. What you're doing is you're increasing your financial stress. The other thing is, is that a lot of the personal finance conventional wisdom is that the problem person is the person who spends too much, okay? It's somebody who maxes out their credit cards, they go deep into debt, they go bankrupt. That person is the problem person, and we want to avoid that at all costs. But as much as you can spend too much, you can also spend too little. And if you spend too little, you're not going to run the risk of bankruptcy for sure, but you're going to ruin relationships because you're going to be a big pain in the butt for everybody you hang out with, so those are some of my thoughts on personal finance. I actually just finished the book proposal, so I'd love to get a book deal next year and get this going.
0: as we close out the conversation, what are some of the things that you're excited about just in terms of you mentioned mentioned the book and of course you're you're continuing the process of being the editor of the daily dirt nap. What about on the on the investing side that some of the bigger long-term themes or ideas. What's got you excited?
1: Actually, I'm sort of in a period of time right now where I'm not really, I'm in a transition period. I'm not really excited by anything. And I'm actually, I mean, to be honest, I'm actually kind of lost. I don't have a good read on the markets right now. My thesis was that inflation would be beneficial for asset prices in the beginning, but once it became high and pervasive, then it would start to be negative for asset prices, much like in the 60s and 70s. In the 60s, as inflation was rising, it was beneficial for asset prices. But then once it got to be pervasive, what you saw was valuations compress. So I believe that the 2020s or like the 1970s, I think we should see valuations compress over the next 10 years. And that's going to make it very difficult to trade.
0: Well, these things definitely take time to materialize, sometimes longer than we think they should. The market's timeline can be frustrating in terms of the the kind of cause and effect, but we certainly could plausibly be on that path as you describe it. Well, Jared, listen, I want to say it's been excellent to catch up. I've enjoyed following your very individual career path, going it alone and really building something that folks are, are enjoying. And you're enjoying, too. So it's really great to see. And good luck with with the new book.
1: Cool. Thanks for having me on.
0: You've been listening to The Alpha Exchange. If you've enjoyed the show, please do tell a friend. And before we leave, I wanted to invite you to drop us some feedback. As we aim to utilize these conversations to contribute to the investment community's understanding of risk, your input is valuable and provides direction on where we should focus please email us at feedback at alpha exchange podcast.com. Thanks again and catch you next time.